Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a murder that occurred in 2001. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. At 10.40 that night, neighbors called 911 saying they'd heard gunshots. The killer had shot whales in the neck and torso, then vanished. The Justice Department still has a reward for up to a million dollars. In my 28 years, I never knew a prosecutor who exerted that kind of control over the FBI. If whatever you're doing hasn't worked for 16 years, maybe you ought to try to do something different. This is Episode 2, The Seattle Freeze. I'm your host, David Payne. There are people out there who know who we killed you. We will never give up our search for the truth. We will never I have no give idea. Up. They could have been a, a vacuum cleaner salesman. And I never thought I'd be here 15 years later. Left. left here. Left here. James, don't get me T-bone. Shit. God, stop. Uh, Shush. Jesus. We have Kill him. <laughs> Republic Restaurant in the South Lake Union area of Seattle, is one of those fancy gastropubs that caters to the 20-somethings that work nearby at Amazon's headquarters. In our quest to solve Tom Whale's murder, Jody has been working her magic, and she tracks one of the eyewitnesses to this eatery, a man named Dan Olsby. And we want to hear from him firsthand what he remembers. So it turns out that rolling up on people at work without a badge and asking them about a 16-year-old murder isn't always well-received. And we wait anxiously for Dan, wondering if he will avoid us and make a beeline for the rear exit. Eventually, though, we are greeted by a man in his early 40s. Dan has the bearing of a former athlete, and he's carrying both a clipboard and the well-earned worry of a general manager planning a 20-table dinner tonight. We're pleasantly surprised when he agrees to answer our questions. So we rolled up on Dan. (laughs) Sorry, Dan. Um, And wanted to see if we could talk to you about the night of October 11th, 2001. I know it's been some time, so would love to just sort of help us understand what was going on that night. I had gotten off work early, had come back to my parents' house to wait for uh, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, and... In waiting, I was in the far side of the house, and I heard what sounded like firecrackers rapidly going off. Can you kind of describe that sound? Was it a pop, a crack? No, it it was definitely pop, 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 like in succession, quick, which again, I just thought of a little strand of firecrackers going off in the kid down the street. The way you're describing it sounds like somebody that really knew what they were doing with a handgun. That was a lot of bullets in a short period of time. 
so my experience has always been typically in that case a lot of times that's self-defense right because in self-defense times you will sit there and repeatedly fire not even knowing necessarily how many you fire so depending on how well it did yeah that you'd make you think that someone knew what they were doing with the firearm i grew up The Olsby family grew up in Tom Whale's neighborhood of Queen Anne, a quiet enclave just north of the Seattle Space Needle. He recalls sunny summer days seeing Tom mowing the yard and waving at the kids in what I imagine as a howdy-neighbor kind of way. And so you're at home, you're in your 20s, yeah? Help us sort of paint that picture. Yes. So I'm like, what, 25 or 26 years old, just gotten off work, and was just waiting for my girlfriend to come over. We were going to head down to Paragon. She told me about all Even though Dan was several houses away, he heard the shots that killed Tom Wales clearly resound in succession, something that would be relevant for investigators even years later. I'm on the opposite side of the house, away from it, and I heard it pretty clear. So we waited in the house. That's when we were told by one of the officers that what house it had come from. So then obviously we knew it was Tom Wales. And from that, there was a lot of concern in the mom. And now my parents are up and everyone's just trying to figure out what's going on. What was going on was that someone had snuck into the backyard of Tom Wales, hid out, and when the time was right, walked over to his daylight basement window and shot him. Of the four to six shots reported, two hit their mark, one in the torso and one in the neck. Police and EMT responded quickly to the scene, but Tom was declared dead at Harborview Hospital just three hours later. We decided to ask Tom's friend, Ralph Fasciatelli, to take us to the crime scene to get a better picture of what Dan has described. Left. Starting route to 108 Hayes Street. Oh, you screwed up. That's all right. Yeah, you want to go straight through there? Actually, I'll show you another way to go. Yeah, you I'll know show what? you another way to go. So tell me about this neighborhood. You know, Queen Anne is a great little small town in the midst of a big city. You know, it's an island. And it's it's got a main street, and it's got everything you want here. You can quickly escape the big city, and it's kind of bucolic. You know, it's got a great sense of neighborhood. It's a great place to raise kids. We're sitting on the top of a hill in my car, searching for a place to park. On the narrow streets of Queen Anne, cars have to serpentine in and out of driveways in order to pass one another. I think that's the house right there. But that can't be the house. Let's see. Was it? Looks like they changed it. Do you remember what number it was? It's it, 108. Yeah, so they changed it. So what I've read, they've described being in an... The shooter was in an alley mm-hmm. in the back. Mm-hmm. Is there an alley that runs parallel to the house? Parallel to No, Hayes this Street? is the alley that was talked about. So this, I think, has been... I don't remember this being here. I mean, it's been a long time. But this whole section here is new. I remember there being a tree or something in here 
Actually, this looks wider than I remember it. But, you know, this was here. This is all new. They've added all this here. Right. They've added all this here. So somebody came. As Ralph and I talk, construction workers begin loading materials on their trailer at the house across the street. A house that back in 2001 probably cost about 300 grand, but which could easily fetch 2 million plus in Seattle's burgeoning real estate market today. So how on earth do you get behind the house? It's over here. So, right. It's over here. I wonder, so we walked around the corner and they're standing in front of one of his neighbor's house. If that gate wasn't there... You could come through this way. You could come through this way or even... I mean, you got to walk pretty damn close to someone's house. It is amazing that someone didn't eye him until... Well, somebody obviously cased cased it a couple of times. You don't just case it once because you don't know what's an anomaly and what's, you know, normal procedure. So somebody invested some time in scoping out this neighborhood. It's just not easy to get back there. No. Uh, I mean, now it's virtually impossible without being so close to someone's house. You know what's interesting is you stand in front of the house. The distance to the street is short, right? So, I mean, if somebody is shooting somebody and then getting away, you know, the neighbors are so literally on top of you. And it's Queen Anne. I mean, it takes 10 minutes to get off this hill. I mean, and it wasn't 2 a.m. in the morning. It was, you know, 11 p.m. at night while he was still awake. And you figure, you know, there'd be neighbors awake. And there were neighbors awake. The neighbors were indeed awake. Not only a young Dan Oldsby, but also next-door neighbor Emily Holt. As Ralph walks us around Tom's house, we literally bump into her. We're journalists and we're doing a story here. Have you lived long in the neighborhood? 35 years. Have you really? Yeah. Oh, oh, wow. We are um, doing a podcast about Tom Wales. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. A podcast on Tom Wales. Yeah, we were here when he was murdered. Are you Emily? Oh, hi, I'm Jody. Hello, Jody. Sorry to hijack your... uh, (laughs) Hi. Dog walk? Dog? It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. So, Ralph... This is Emily Holt. Hello. Oh, hi. hi. Oh, this is Emily? Yeah. Oh, hi. Wow. This is Mike. Sorry. It's not like you know me. No, no, no. no she we just know your name. Hi, Emily. Okay. This is Ralph. Ralph. Ralph Chitelli. I'm close friends of Tom Wales. Oh, okay. And I'm current board president of Washington Ceasefire. Nice. So David and Jody are former CNN journalists nice. that are doing a podcast on Tom that we're hoping is going to, you know, shed some light on, oh, boy. on who yeah, did it. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. This serendipitous meeting on the street with eyewitness Emily Holt seems like a promising omen. We, of course, want to know right away what Emily heard or saw that fateful night. The FBI has been notoriously tight-lipped about most of the details of this case. But they did release, and it was widely reported, that a lone man was seen leaving Wales' house after the shooting, walking hurriedly to a car and driving away. Did Emily see the man? I don't. I don't really understand what happened at all. Yeah. There was a lot of stuff, and yeah, oh, just a lot went down. And as we stand on the street, recorder in hand, we want to hear exactly what that stuff was. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're remarking on how difficult it was for somebody to shoot accurately down at Tom at night, 
you know, through a window and shoot that well, with, with a Let me say farm. something right now. We're about to walk a dog. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's not really a good, I'm yeah. not okay. ready to be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, that's no, fine. No, we didn't that, mean to, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jump in. yeah. But that's what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, so I got you. Yeah. Would yeah. you mind if no, we talk to you? You got it. No worries. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And as would be the case time and time again in our investigation, it seemed to never be a good time to talk to two Seattle newcomers about a murder. All of our subsequent entreaties to Emily would go unanswered. Frustrated but undaunted, we ask her former neighbor Dan if he can corroborate the single gunman story that has been leaked to the press. I also assume you probably saw the composite that the police put out about of somebody that was seen in the neighborhood. Did they ever talk to you about that? No. Do you remember seeing the composite? I don't remember seeing a composite. If you looked at a picture of the composite, you wouldn't be able to tell anything any, anyway, right? Because you never saw anything that night. No. If I saw a picture of a composite, the only thing I could tell you is I've actually recognized that. But I couldn't put it to that date because, again, I didn't see anyone that evening. Time doesn't do well. Finding someone who actually saw something that evening would become our tilting windmill, the object of our quixotic obsession over the coming months. But what about other leads from the crime scene? Here's what we knew. In his haste, or maybe intentionally, if you want to get super conspiratorial, the killer had left behind multiple bullet casings that had been ejected from the gun that shot Tom Wales. Through forensic and ballistic analysis of the spent casings and the bullet slugs themselves, the FBI concluded that the gun that had been used to kill Tom Wales was a Makarov. Makarov handguns are generally thought of as collector's items, kind of a gimmick gun. They look like the English Walther PPK. They're manufactured in Eastern Europe, Bulgaria, Poland, and Russia. They're most commonly used as a sidearm for military intelligence officers in the Eastern Bloc. We wondered, had Wales been expertly assassinated by someone with military experience overseas? Could this have been a hit with international undertones? One of the things I think has been really overlooked, and it takes a unique individual who would have the um, technical skills to perform this type of an event. I read somewhere that only 20% of, of police hit their target first time out, and to accurately hit your target from what was probably 30, 40 feet away, in the dark, in a narrow space, at a downward angle, you know, is next to impossible. And there are very, I mean, that, that has to be a professional that does that. And you add nighttime, poor lighting, you add the pressure that if you don't shoot this right, you know, then you're going to get caught in that angle. I am increasingly convinced that this was a professional hit job. And I don't think enough emphasis was, was put into that. But to be a professional sniper, you have to have real-world military experience. That's why I think these rumors that, you know, the sniper came from Yugoslavia and Croatia, was a veteran of that war, there was a sniper war, certainly carries a lot of weight with me. I wonder if there has ever been, since that time, any other murder with a Makarov under conditions, anything like this in the United States. Think about it. This could have been an individual. The war ends. He's very good at this. 
Maybe he has an agent of sorts, kind of a, a gun padron in Las Vegas, and says, look, this guy doesn't want to be a professional sniper. He's got a family to support, but he needs a $50,000 job that can pay for three years of his existence before a war torn country and his world gets back together again. You know, he does it one time, and then he, he slides back into the, into the world he's in. If you are hiring the best of the best, though, there's a financial transaction somewhere where you're withdrawing cash to pay for that. Mm-hmm. You so think where, so? So where are those records? I have no idea. That's a good question for the FBI and stuff like that. That's a good question. Ralph seems fixated on this sniper hitman angle, and I want to know more about why. He tells me a story. It turns out that Tom had a favorite restaurant to hang out in, a little Italian restaurant near Fremont called Ponte Vecchio's. So if you park right, actually right ahead of that Subaru, mm-hmm. it's not there anymore, but I'm going to show you where it was. It was right there. See where the Schilling Cider House is? That's Ponte Vecchio's? Yeah, it was right there. Now a craft beer tasting house, this was the place Tom would come to unwind after work. Back then, it had a different vibe. It was owned by an Italian immigrant, and they played opera there. And Tom loved the place, and he was an entertaining, colorful character. I emphasize character. Tom took me there one time. I'm of Italian heritage. I like to became friends with the owner because he was an Italian immigrant. And, you know, he was fond of Tom. It was Tom's home away from home because he was living by himself at the time. And the owner probably had some other side business activities. And he told me one time, kind of off the cuff, that the word on the street, I think this is the way he said it, the word on the street is that there was a hitman that killed Tom and he was from Eastern Europe. And he went back to Eastern Europe. He came, you know, he was probably somebody involved in the war. And I think he said that actually in the Bosnian War. And that never gonna catch him. Ralph tells me he reported this conversation to the FBI via the hotline. He says he never heard a word. So who was this mysterious restaurant owner? And might he hold the secret that could crack this case wide open. What was the owner's name? I think it was Michaela Zacco. In all our research, we had never heard or seen this name. And with allegations of FBI mismanagement and nary a mention of this hitman scenario in any of their leaks, Jody and I figure it's on us now to find this Michaela Zacco and to chase down this 16-year-old lead. Next week on Somebody Somewhere. Starting route to Federal Way. Proceed to the route, then turn left. Let's go. Hello? Hi, I was trying to reach Macau. Is he there? Every prosecutor knows 
that jailhouse snitching is probably the least reliable information you can get. But he had something that was reliable, right? Well, I didn't like the fact that he was the last person to see the victim alive. And you don't have to be a federal prosecutor. You just need to watch television to know that that's a significant fact. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change. Turn the ship another way. Somebody Somewhere is written and produced by Jody Gottlieb and me. It is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. If you're making your first podcast or if you're a seasoned veteran, it doesn't matter. These guys are both professional and personable, and we couldn't have done this show without them. Check them out at ResonateRecordings.com. Original score and voiceover work provided by Hallie Payne. A Foolish Game is written and performed by Snowflake. If you have any information regarding the Tom Wales case, please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.